What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? Were the disciples followers of Jesus? It appears that they certainly followed him wherever he went. They assisted him with the crowds. They helped him pass out loaves of bread and fish. They listened to his teaching. They spent a day and night with him. Were the disciples Christian? Mark tells us that their hearts were hardened. Similar language that we find in Exodus where the Lord describes Pharaoh's heart as hardened. Were they hardened after they had seen and witnessed Jesus feed the multitudes? Were they hardened when they watched Him calm the storm? Not once, not twice. And were they hardened when they watched Him walk on the waves? Again, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? The next couple questions that I have for us this morning are difficult to ask. And maybe more difficult to answer. Are you? Am I a follower of Jesus? Are you? Am I a Christian? Is your heart, is my heart, hardened? In the turmoil of this unprecedented age that we find ourselves, it seems to me that there's a great deal of fear. Fear that somehow we're lost adrift in a world that's gone awry, somehow off course. We've lost our navigational purposes just as the disciples have lost their way adrift on the sea, rowing against the wind. In a world that seems like it's perhaps even spun off of its axis and we're left to desperately hang on to anything that's solid. Fear that evil's not being called out. Fear that things are worse than they've ever been before. And out of this fear and desperation, there wells within us a misunderstanding. A misunderstanding of what actually is happening. What is going on in the midst of this craziness, this, this, this world that we find ourselves in. Perhaps even a, a growing misunderstanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus or a growing misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. So I wonder, in the middle of asking these hard questions, have we lost the ability to honestly answer them? In the turmoil, in the fear, and the misunderstanding, have we, along with the disciples in their toil, their fear, their misunderstanding, failed to see the transcendent glory manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ as He walks on the water? There's much to see and know about this story. And I wish I had two or three or four sermons to actually explore everything that we can in Mark chapter 6, especially on this story of the walking of the water. But we need to see the turmoil. We need to see through the fear. We need to see through and in the misunderstanding 
is that we are not the first persons to wrestle with these things. We're not the first people to walk on this globe, on this terrestrial ball that we talked about, asking these questions. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live in a world that seems to gone awry? The disciples followed Jesus every day. And they didn't get it. They were terrified. They were astounded. Their hearts were hard. They were Christians without any doubt. I have no doubt about that. And I would say that most of us in this room and online are Christians. But we, with the disciples, live in brokenness. And too often, it is in the blindness of this brokenness and fear that steers our gaze away from the manifest glory of the Lord God that's found in Jesus Christ. But it's this glory, this manifest glory that's at stake here in Mark chapter 6. It's this glory that calls us in our toil, in our fear, and in our misunderstanding to see His glory, not in some strange thing that we can't put our hands around, some, some emotion or some thought, but we need to see the glory in flesh and blood in a person, in Jesus, in a Savior who meets us, who meets us in that fear, in that turmoil, in that confusion, in the craziness of life, just as He did with the disciples in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of their fear, in the middle of when their arms can't row anymore and they're dog-tired and they don't get it. Jesus walks to them and He gets in their boat. But in order to best understand this story, we need to think of the aspen tree again. And we need to see where this pops up in other places of the Scriptures. To see the glory, to see the beauty, not just of one little tree, one little story, but to see the, the beauty of the grove of aspens, the beauty of the, the grove of Scripture. And so we don't start just on the sea here this morning. We start on a couple of mountains. And we start in the most tragic of lives. In order to start on a mountain, we need to start an exodus. The people of God have escaped from Egypt. They've been let out of Egypt, I should say. Pharaoh has been defeated. The sea has been divided and they walked across on dry land. The Lord has brought manna from heaven to the people and He's provided for them. He's sustained them and He's brought them into the wilderness to show them who He is and who they are and to teach them and to show them how to live as those that follow the Lord God, Yahweh. But the Lord has gone before them in their turmoil. He's gone before them in their grumbling and He's heard their cries and their fears of what is going on in this wilderness. What's around the next bend? Who's going to maraud us? Who's going to attack us? Over and over again we hear these stories. They don't understand. They don't know where they're going. So they make golden calves. They worship other idols. They seek their own pleasures and comforts rather than the Lord their God. They were tired. They were scared, and they didn't get it. And then Moses goes on top of a mountain, 
And he begs God to show him the way. How do I care for these people? I don't know what to do. I'm tired. They don't listen to me. I'm scared for what they're going to do to me. And I don't understand your will, Lord. Show me your way. This is what we see in Exodus 33. Moses asking God these questions. Who are you? What are you doing? And I am scared to death. And this is the account in Exodus chapter 33. The Lord says, I know you by name, Moses. And Moses says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name. And then later in verse 20, the Lord says to Moses, you cannot see my face. For man shall, not, for man shall see me, not see me, and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you should stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I am passed by Moses. I am passed by Moses in glory that is unmatched for Moses cannot even look at this glory or else he will die. He cannot see the face of the Lord and all of the goodness of Yahweh I am was revealed to Moses as he was hidden in a rock and the Lord shielded his face with his hand as he passed by Moses and all Moses could see was the trail end of his robe. And then on another mountain in 1 Kings 18 and 19, the prophet Elijah has defeated the prophets of Baal. Do you remember this great story? Where the prophets of Baal challenged Elijah to a showdown. Our God versus your God. So they put up these altars and a bull on one and a bull on another. And, and the prophets of Baal danced around their bull over and over again. And Moses said, hey, pour some water on it. And they poured water on it and, water, and drenched it with water. And they, the prophets of Baal were incessant. They, they were exhausted in trying to call down fire upon this altar. I got my water mixed up, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have to retract my statement. The water comes later. But then Moses, or Elijah, excuse me, the, the, calls and mocks them and jeers them that the, the fire cannot be called on to their sacrifice. And then he says, let me try to, answer, let me try to, to ask my God if he can bring down fire upon this sacrifice, and here's where the water comes in. Bucket upon bucket of bucket of water poured on to the sacrifice that Elijah had erected. And he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord sent a consuming fire. And the prophets of Baal were terrified, and they didn't understand, and they ran away, cutting themselves in defeat. After this, Queen Jezebel was not very happy with Elijah. She wanted to kill him. Elijah got word of this plan, and so he fled, and he, he ran out into the wilderness about a day's journey and came and sat down under a broom tree. And under the shade of this broom tree, in his fear and in his tired and weak state and in his misunderstanding of where the Lord was taking him, he cried out to the Lord, let me just die. I have no purpose. Let me just die. No one listens to me. Sounds a lot like Jonah. Let me just die here. But then, 
an angel came to his rescue and gave him food and water and said, rise and go. And so Elijah went into the wilderness 40 days nourished by the food and drink that the angel provided him. And 40 days and 40 nights he went into the wilderness until he came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. It was there where he entered into a cave and in it the Lord spoke to him. The Lord told him to stand on the side of the mountain before the Lord And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke the pieces of rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquakes, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a whisper. And he says, I am. The Lord is the one who in the turmoil of journey and the fear and uncertainty, His sovereignty over the wind, over the earth, and over the fire. They hear His voice. His sovereignty is in control. And these things obey His command. But in that moment, Elijah understood the glory of the Lord. The Lord God Almighty, I am. And as amazing as these two stories are, the accounts of I am, Yahweh passing by, there is yet one more story that speaks more into Mark chapter 6 than I would even say these two speak into it. We go to one of the most dramatic books of the entire Bible. The story of Job. A wealthy man with the family he adored. How wealthy was he? Just for a, a quick little understanding of, of a few of the things here. In the book of Job, we're told that he had 7,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. What do you th- how much money is that? Well, I did some uh, market research on, on sheep this week of current market. Uh, if you were to have a sheep and you were to sell a sheep, what would that give you? So an average sheep is about 150 pounds, or is about $150 a pound. And uh, so if you have 7,000 sheep, that puts you at 1 million, just over a million dollars. That's in his sheep. Pretty good. But then it goes on to say that he has 3,000 camels. Camels are worth more than sheep. 500 oxen. Oxen are worth more than camels. And then... 500 female donkeys. Well, why female donkeys? Why not male donkeys? Well, if you know anything about agriculture, anything about herds, females are the ones that make babies. So if you have one female donkey and you can breed her, that means you most likely will have at least one more donkey. So they were the cash flow. His, his female donkeys were his cash flow. So he had a million dollars just in sheep, and that doesn't count his camels or his ox or his donkeys. The man was loaded, and later in Job it says he was the most powerful man of the world. He was the Elon Musk who just overtook Bezos as the most wealthy person in the world. Job was the Elon Musk of the Old Testament. He had money. He had fame. And he had a wonderful family. Three daughters and sons whom he loved and whom they would get together and they would worship the Lord God together and they would offer sacrifices to the Lord. A godly man, a godly family. And he lived with God in his heart. And then we know the rest of the story, don't we? Satan was allowed to tempt Job. 
And then one fateful day, the wealth was gone. The fame was gone. The animals were gone. His children, gone. I I cannot tell you what that must have been like. His heartache was immense. I dare not venture to understand his weariness, his fear, his misunderstanding. Why, God? Why are you doing this to me? I don't get it. I don't understand. Who are you? What are you doing? And he, even Job, lamented the day that he was born. Cursed be the day that I was born. But then Job wonders, who can contend with the Lord? How can one be right with God? No one can compare to the Lord. He removes mountains. He shakes the earth. He commands the sun. And then he says these words, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Behold, He passes by me, and I see Him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive Him. And then we come to Mark chapter 6, once again in verse 48. And Jesus, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, or as Job puts it, trampling the water. And then back to Mark. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out to him for all they saw for, for they all saw him, and they were terrified they were tired they were terrified and they didn't understand but immediately he spoke to them and he said take heart it is i and as much as a fulfillment of job's statement jesus trampled the sea and strode upon the waves the disciples were weary they were in turmoil from a long night of fighting the waves and then in the middle of the night there is a figure walking on the water as if it was solid ground. Struck with fear, for the lore of the fishermen of the day was that when the waves came and the storms came on the sea, and the sea that they were sailing on was notoriously known for whipping up storms out of nowhere. That it was the the, the underworld, the demons that would cause the waves to churn. And so if someone could walk on the waves, it must have been a demon. It must have been a ghost. For the word that that Mark used for ghost is sometimes used for the word demon. They thought it was a demon walking. They were terrified. Oh no, the lore is true. And he walks on the waves. Tired and terrified. The Lord who causes the wind and the earth to quake. Who causes the fire to swelter. The one who commands the wind to obey His voice. The one who whispers to Elijah now speaks to these tired and fearful men these misunderstanding men in the middle of the night. And as he said to Moses, and as he said to Elijah, he says to these men, and he says to you and me, take heart, it is I. In the Greek it says, ego eimi. Which is the same words when the Greek translates the Old Testament as I am. He says to the disciples in the boat, take heart, Yahweh is here. I am. The manifest glory of the Lord God, the manifest glory of Yahweh, does not pass them by as He did to Moses, as He did with Elijah, as He did with Job. No, Yahweh gets in the boat with them. 
in the middle of their tiredness, in the middle of their fear, in the middle of their misunderstanding, Jesus walks to them. You see the glory that is inherent in Yahweh, the glory that Moses could not see and had to be shielded from, the glory that whispered through the wind into Elijah now was riding in the boat. But we have a temptation very quickly in this story, don't we? We have a temptation to, to say that the application of this verse is just keep, keep your eyes on Jesus and everything's going to be okay. If, if you take your eyes off of Jesus, then the storms are going to rage and everything terrible is going to happen to you. But if you just keep your eyes focused long enough and hard enough on Jesus, on the manifest glory of Christ, then your life will not have any storms. That's not what this story is saying. It's not a matter of just focus your gaze on Jesus. That's not the point of the story. It's not even a story about how tired or fearful that we are, or even that we don't understand. This is a story about how the manifest glory of Yahweh in the person of Jesus Christ pursues us in our brokenness. He pursues us in the turmoil. He pursues us in our fear. He pursues us in our misunderstanding. And He says to you and to me, take heart. It is I. From the time that we have left, I want to explore these verses a bit more, but not so much all of the verses, but one strange section of the verses. The part where Mark says at the ending of the scene where they're on the boat, They didn't get it. Their hearts were hardened. Why does Mark say that? He's the only one of the Gospels who all account for this story. He's the only one that gives us this detail. He says, they've seen him walk on the water. They saw him get in the boat. They saw the the, the waves be calmed for the second time. And yet their hearts were hard. Mark gives us this deal for a number of reasons, I believe. Mark tells us that their hearts were hardened because they did not understand the loaves. Well, that doesn't help me much, Ryan. What does that mean? Their hearts were hardened not, not because they, they didn't see Jesus walk in the water. Their hearts, were not hard, their hearts were hardened not because Jesus has done all these things. Their hearts were hardened because they didn't get it. They didn't get what Jesus had just done in the story preceding the walking on the water. They didn't get the fact that Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves. They didn't understand. So what does that mean? And this is where I want to dig in a little bit. Again, to see not just the one aspen tree, but the grove and the beauty of Scripture, how it's connected, how it's intertwined, and how it all relates to one another. For we can't read this section of Mark chapter 6 really without reading the story of Jesus feeding the multitudes. But for time, I I wasn't able to read an additional 20 or so verses. But we know the story well of Jesus feeding the uh, the 5,000, don't we? Jesus was teaching the crowds on the mountains. And it was getting getting dark and the people were hungry. And the disciples said to Jesus, "Uh, Jesus, we've been out here all day and I know I'm hungry and I'm sure these other people are hungry too. What should we do? Give us some money and we'll go into town and we'll buy some food. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. How how many fish do you have? How many loaves do you have? They have five loaves and some fish. And taking the loaves and the fish, he looked into the heavens 
And he asked a blessing upon them. And then he took the fish and he gave it to the disciples and he took the bread and he broke it into pieces and he put it in the basket and he gave it to the disciples and they gave it to the people. And the people that were there were all satisfied. Quick guesstimate of probably twelve to 15,000 people were full. They took up 12 baskets of broken pieces of the fish and they spread them out to the people. But the disciples misunderstood. They misunderstand the miracle and Jesus dismissed them into the boat and He dismissed the crowd and He went on the mountain to pray. The disciples still didn't get Jesus' mission, did they? Many many scholars, and, and I would even say that they still had this notion of what the Messiah should be, ought to be, needs to be. They wanted the Messiah to come and wipe out the Romans. They wanted the Messiah to come and make their lives easy. They wanted the Messiah to come and no longer have the turmoil, the fear, the misunderstanding. They wanted to be raised to glory, to power, to control, for their pride. This is the Messiah to make our lives worth something. To make it easy that our ways will be the ways of the world. This is what they desired, but they didn't get it. Growing against the wind in more fear as they thought demons were brewing up the sea and still didn't understand the miracles that were performed right in front of their eyes. They didn't understand the loaves. Am I a follower of Jesus? I wonder how many of us still want a political Messiah. A Messiah to make things right. A Messiah to make things the way that we want them. The way that we think they should go. I want a Messiah to give me the answers to show me the way. To give me the answers to my deepest desires and needs. To to, to make my life just a a little bit uh, easier. Do we understand the loaves? We want the storm of 2020 to go away and yet 2021 has brought no new relief. Do we understand the loaves? In the Gospel of John, immediately following the story that we read here in Mark's account of the walking on the water, it's the next morning. And there the disciples are in and around the area of Capernaum. And they're away from the, crowd, the crowds, and, and they were amazed at something. For Jesus had gone away, and somehow they, they have now found Jesus on the shore where they were headed. And they said, Jesus, how did you get here? I really don't get how you were once in our boat and we rode over here and now you're... What's going on? And Jesus says to them, you seek me because you saw the miracles. You saw the cool things that I could do. 
You saw me take 12, some loaves and fish, and you saw me feed 10, 15,000 people, and you are pursuing me for that. You want, the, you want the supernatural things. You want the things that make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You want those types of sensational things to be your Messiah. But that's not what I'm saying to you. They still don't get the loaves. They don't understand why Jesus was walking on the water. They don't understand why He did what He did the day before. And Jesus says, you seek Me for the miracles. He then tells them, it wasn't Moses who gave the food to the people in the wilderness. It was Yahweh who brought the manna every day without fail and fed the people. It was not a mere man that gave them the loaves on the mountain when they were hungry just yesterday, but it was I Am. It was Yahweh who provides the bread in the same way He provided the manna in the wilderness when they were tired and when they were terrified and when they didn't understand. And then do you remember what Jesus says? The same words that He spoke to them last night as He walked on the water, He says, Ego in me. I Am. And this is where the lows connect to this story. The one that passed by Moses, the one that passed by Elijah, the one that passed by the disciples and got into their boat is now the one that stands on the side of the mountain and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger or thirst again. Yahweh's on the dock in Capernaum. The manifest glory is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So what is it about the loaves they didn't understand? What is it about the loaves that we don't understand? In our turmoil, in our fear, and even our misunderstanding, it's Jesus who enters into the boat and comforts our need. This is a story that does not make our struggles go away. It doesn't say everything is going to be great. As a matter of fact, for the disciples, it quickly turns much worse. And I can't stand up here this morning and tell you that 2021 is going to be any better than 2020. But I can tell you that Jesus is in the boat. In our brokenness, there's a basket. In our brokenness, there's a basket of broken pieces of bread given to us. On the mountain, Jesus broke the loaves. And he gave it to the people. He gave it to the people to meet their hunger and they were satisfied. On the cross, the bread of life was broken. Broken by the scourging whip of a Roman centurion. On the cross, the bread of life was broken by the fists of mockers on the Via Della Rosa. On the cross, the bread of life was broken by the piercing and agonizing, scandalous horror of the crucifixion and Jesus says to the disciples and he says to you and he says to me I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall never hunger or thirst whoever believes in me will never hunger or thirst for I have come down from heaven in the same way that manna came down from heaven in in the people in the wilderness so too Jesus has come down into heaven not to do my will, he says, but the will of the one who sent me. And this, if you are misunderstanding what is the will of the Lord, what is God's will for your life? This is the will of the one who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. 
but rather raise it up on the last day. The will of the Lord is that you are His, no matter the turmoil, no matter the fear, no matter the misunderstanding. He will not lose you. No matter what 2021 looks like, Jesus is in the boat. Do you understand the loaves? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means that Jesus has been sent from heaven to take you and me as His own. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that the manifest glory of Yahweh was broken in order that you would know beyond any shadow of a doubt so that you would understand that you are forever in His grasp and that death has no sting. In order that in the fire of turmoil, in in the wind, in the quake of fear, He whispers through it all to you. Imagine Elijah on the mountain. And he's just witnessed this scene, right? Have you ever seen the Lord of the Rings where Sauron shakes the mountain and the snow and it all shakes and they're terrified? So here Elijah's on the side of the mountain with the, with the mountain shaking and the wind roaring and the Lord whispers through the wind and through the quake and through the fire to Elijah and he says, I am. Take heart. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to know that on the last day He will raise you from the dead. For the passerby, Yahweh, the bread of life is with you now and tomorrow and to the end of the age. Amen.